Welcome to the latest podcast from the London Institute of Banking and Finance, lifelong partners for financial education. Learn more about our qualifications at www.libf.ac.uk. Thank you all, all for coming. Uh, good evening. Uh, for those of you who I haven't met, I'm Pete Hine. I'm the, the Dean and Henry Grunfeld Professor of Banking. Uh, it's wonderful to have you. Uh, this is our guest, Simon Jack. I'll, I'll introduce him in a moment. Uh, just for those of you who haven't had a, a, a relatively recent update on us, uh, we're having an exceptionally good year at the London Institute of Banking and Finance. We're really very, very pleased. Uh, this year, we welcomed our largest uh, contingent of undergraduate students since uh, we got our university license. So uh, we're really very, very, very pleased. The, uh, our applications are... Uh, in continuing to increase. Uh, we're happy with our students. The mix of our students, I, I must say, uh, I'm extremely keen on looking around at the crowd, uh, diversity in financial services. So while uh, many of you look similar to me, I think this was the largest percentage of uh, female students in particular that we, we've had uh, beyond our expectations, but a lot of them didn't come tonight, so I have to <laughs> understand why that, why that is. So take it as a personal insult. Um, along with uh, our university program, uh, our professional qualifications are also doing exceptionally well. Uh, and in the secondary school space, I just wanted to highlight for those of you who remember, we have 50,000. So let me, I, I just want to introduce Simon in a bit of a funny way, I guess. So Simon's background wonderfully. Uh, for all of us who are interested in financial services, before he became a journalist, he worked in financial services, which really sets him apart from virtually all the... Uh, Simon is the business editor at the BBC since uh, 2016. He is a PPE graduate of St. John's College, Oxford. Uh, worked in London, New York. Bermuda sounds nice, but I imagine it's not... I try and keep that pretty quiet. <laughs> all the time. So he joined the BBC in 2003 to uh, wake up to money. Uh, I've, I've been up that early. I don't think I can get up that early anymore. Uh, and the first time he interviewed me, we were chatting before, was on Business Breakfast. So Business Breakfast, the television show, and for some reason it was uh, early in financial crisis, like 2009, 10, I guess around that time. And I have this funny memory of that particular interview because there was an actor... Uh, whose name eludes me, who was on the couch talking about having uh, some type of Robin Hood taxes on banks. And I almost lost it arguing with him. It was pretty rare for me. But I was trying to say, where, um, where is the money going to come from? It's going to come from us. And uh, he, he <coughs> I think, didn't appreciate it very much. Uh, we have done many interviews. Uh, probably the most memorable to me is some of the RBS ones. I believe I was standing on the pedestal in front of the horse in the Bank of England for one of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I, I also, uh, shortly after joining LIBF, we did one outside in front of the monument. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, RBS was about to pay some really major fines. And I alluded to the fire on the monument and said, kind of a, a very uh, amusing one. So. Uh, if you'd please um, join me in welcoming Simon to, to join us. Thank you for coming. Thank you. So, 
<laughs> can, I, can I just say, just as a way of introduction, I hate doing these, well, I don't hate doing these things, but I'm nervous about them because when you've got lots of people who are studying this stuff at the time, have read all the stuff, then they're much closer to the primary text. And I, and I know that all of you guys, particularly the ones under the age of 22, know more about this stuff than I do. So all I have is, uh, you know, some memories of some of the last 10 years and some of the things that come across my desk. So that's done. Uh, oh, I, I think you, you, you've always, we, we've always had fascinating conversations. Mm. So we asked for some questions in advance. You'll see some of them are up there. Uh, a lot of them uh, came in and uh, they weren't in a particular order. So. I wanted to start, we'll, we'll do about two-thirds of the time. I've grouped together a number of the questions, and then we'll try and open them up to have a broader audience. Now, I can't help starting without starting with RBS, because, you know, I don't know we, we've talked about it so much. And one of the big questions was, you, you must have interviewed the, the leading RBS HBOS figures. Mm. Were they really as clueless as they came across, or...? Um, okay, so I only met Fred Goodwin once, and I don't think anyone will ever meet him ever again. <laughs> People have staked out golf clubs around Europe, and uh, it hasn't worked. Um, he's just playing Fred, of course, these days, <laughs> rather than Sir Fred. Um, I think the, the and the HBOS situation is slightly different. So on the RBS stuff, there was a um, obviously a very acquisitive, um, board-breaking CEO who was totally unconstrained by his own board. And one of the major criticisms that you had of RBS in the aftermath of what happened was that you looked around that board and banking experience mm -hmm. and skill and knowledge was nowhere to be found. But Tom McKillop, his chairman, who was supposed to be kind of like keeping him on a leash of some kind, was uh, you know from the pharmaceutical industry. If you look at HBOS, Andy, um, Remind me his name, Andy uh, Hornby, mm -hmm. thank you, um, had been the protege of um, Archie Norman at Asda. So he was m used to selling tins of beans. Rather. So there were two things. The Asda, there was a lack of understanding that um, banking is not like other industries. You know, it is not only the backbone, but it is the bloodstream mm. of the financial system. Um, and obviously, it is, you know, it. It is in the business of money creation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was creating an enormous amount of money. And I think that what I, what I came across on that front was that the banks had, were in a kind of consumer products mindset. And I went to Florida and I went to meet one of these ninja borrowers, no income, no job, no mm -hmm. assets. Um, and I said, what are you doing borrowing $200,000 to buy a condo? You know you can't afford it. So that's what I thought, he said. But they kept to lend me the money. Then why not? I'll, I'll buy it. And then you, and then you, because a mortgage broker called me and said, do you want a mortgage? And I said, you know, are you sure about this? You know, um, so you go to the mortgage broker and the mortgage broker says, yeah, you know, but, uh, you know, if, if, if it all goes wrong, we, you know, just get the keys back and we can sell the flat and, you know, sell the condo. And not only that, but I've got this, you know, I've got, agents of Lehman Brothers breathing down my neck, wanting more mortgages so they can put them into the sausages they were making, you know, stuffing them, the sausages, which they, they were, uh, and then selling these sausages uh, around the world. And then you go to the regulator and the regulator, and you say, what are you doing allowing these guys to do this? 
And the regulator said, well, the Clinton, you know, um, sort of administration was very keen that we relax some of the lending criteria and, you know, we want to give people a chance to get on the housing ladder. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, had, um, uh, you know, had, had loosened their, you know, the sort of mortgage underwriters had, had loosened their criteria. And then you go to the SEC and the SEC said, well, you know, the Fed aren't doing anything. So everyone was complicit mm -hmm. in that. So there was no kind of one kind of bad guy in that. Mm -hmm. It was basically a collective blindness to the fact that property prices could go down mm. and and so all of that was based on so what i would say is that that the, the 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 management and the boards of those banks thought if we were doing anything wrong we would have been stopped doing it by now and as long as we can do it we'll sell as many tins of beans as we can yeah. no it's the <laughs> after doing mortgage securitization banks. And I looked at the financial numbers and they weren't making any money mm. on the origination and funding of these mortgages. And I asked, why are they doing it? And I, the answer that I got was, well, to keep up market share. Mm. Well, in a commodity business, it wasn't really, mm. it's not economics, but they, they were really, they were really lost. Well, but, but, but there is a read across to yeah. other industries and, and, yeah. and that's where I think the banking industry lost sight of the fact that it's not like other industries. Oh. And so, you know, Tesco and Sainsbury's will get in a price war to maintain market share. The world doesn't go bust yes. if one of them sells a few fewer tins of beans. Well, they're not taking on any risk. Yeah. That's, you yeah. know, that, that, that's side of it. So has it, with RBS, so we did a, a story about the U.S. settlement and yeah. the dividend. Is it, is it, is it over? Is the story over about RBS? Um, I've stood outside 280 Bishopsgate every year for the last 10 years <laughs> talking about, and yet another loss, you know. I mean, they lost a, an astonishing amount of money. Yeah. I mean, even after the bailout, I think if you, if you add up the um, losses, it's something like 63 billion pounds. So the 45 billion the taxpayer put yeah. in has been spent and some. Obviously, offsetting that is some of their, you know, operational revenue. Um, is the RBS story over? I think it probably is, but I think it's over in a really kind of um, interesting way for mainstream lenders like that because um, we'll probably get onto fintech in a little, in a little yeah. while. You know, RBS is still selling for about half what it's worth on paper. Now, there's two reasons for that. Either you think they've got a bunch of dodgy loans which are actually sort of really impaired and, and whatever. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think the case is that um, my kids, for example, I've got 16 and 18 year old children. They, these brands mean nothing to them. RBS, Lloyds, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, they, they mean nothing to them. Um, they would open a bank account with Snap. <laughs> so I think I think the fundamental issues for RBS are over. Ross McEwen has done a reasonably good job of trudging through mud for the last few years um, to get the bank back to a kind of like really sort of boring non-growth kind of story is that all the kind of fun bits, which are quite profitable and non-capital intensive, are things like payments, foreign exchange, you know, stuff like that. And that's being nibbled away at, you know, new competitors who provide better experiences, that my kids would like to use better. You've got Monzo and people coming along. So I think they're out of the, uh, you know, solvency um, and uh, crisis. 
I think RBS, it's funny because RBS, as you know, is a bunch of companies. Um, you've got Coot, you've got, um, uh, help me out here. Um, well, they've, they've, they've actually shed most of those, the insurance and the direct line the they got rid of. But it's still got a bunch of, uh, you know, um, but, but the point is, is they've got a bunch of businesses and yet the brand of the PLC has got the most toxic one well, that was layered the, on top. Well, that's the, you know, the... It's a big question for me, actually. Yeah. This is, will they change the name? For sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I think you're already seeing that um, RBS in the UK is being rebranded as NatWest. NatWest has got this kind of like sort of kind of boring kind of you know I, it, people of a certain vintage will remember the pigs, you know, um, the, the little piggy banks they got from from RBS, and I think that they realise that RBS is a pretty yeah. unhelpful. Um, it's always, I mean, for, from teaching, mm. it's always going to be the mm. biggest bank failure ever. Yeah. I hope. Because yeah, <laughs> if yeah. there's a bigger one, we're in trouble. But. Well, I, all I can say is having just done the 10-year anniversary of yeah. that, because they can't get rid of um, Royal Bank of Scotland for obvious yeah. reasons. But I think you'll see RBS, um, you know, gradually retire, which makes sense to me. It's a good, good lead-in to sort of the concept of transitioning and how how the banking industry is, is really changing. So we've got sort of the big five or the big six, if you include nationwide. Mm. Five years from now, still a big six or? It's, it's an interesting question because I remember talking to, you know, I get to, I'm lucky I get to speak, talk to people like Jamie Dimon and Lloyd Blankfein, David Solomon now, um, and some of the bosses of the bank. And you, and you say that despite this near-death experience in 2008, you go down to Canary Wharf the same names are on the building. Yeah. You know, they're still there. And you think to yourself, when is that going to change? You know, um, will you see a kind of Monzo tower or a uh, TransferWise tower, whatever? And, and I, I think it's, you know, the, the, the incumbents are pretty, you know, yeah, as everyone knows, you're more likely to change your yeah, wife oh yeah, or your yeah. husband than you are your bank account. Although, terrorist, I think. Al although I do think that's going to change. I think that, for example, open banking, mm. which arrived with a bit of a whimper rather than a bang, where you can actually unbundle some of these things, will actually change things. So um, we saw the, the Virgin Money uh, Clydesdale kind of transaction, which pushed them into sort of number six place behind the big four nationwide and whatever. And I think there's going to be the Challenger Bank project, which George Osborne no. is very keen on, has not worked. No. They're too small, and actually, you know, why would you? A banking license is an expensive thing. It's a capital-intensive business. It makes sense to share that. So I think there will be a rough consolidation. Do I think any of the big four will merge with each other? I'm not sure, but I wouldn't be surprised to see some international mergers. No. You know, the Barclays Standard Charter thing is total bollocks, by the way. No. That's not going to happen. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, is Deutsche going to merge with Commerzbank? Uh, you know, would Virgin uh, Money, uh, you know, would that be swallowed up by one of the big four? Possibly. So more likely that a European buys a ring fence bank yeah. than a two ring fence banks combined. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's probably right. That's certainly what the, the, the mood music I'm getting. Interesting. Okay. So who's going to change? So if, if that's not going to, which... So between insurance, asset management, uh, investment banking, who's going to change the most over the next few years? Um, I think the insurance industry is, uh, you, you know, you look at people like Aviva, um, 
it would not surprise me one bit if some big, you know, German insurance company was to buy that. So it, that's the consolidation bit. In the insurance piece, um, insurance is a really interesting thing because insurance is based on the idea of pooled risk. I don't know whether you're going to drop dead tomorrow. Nope. I hope not. And I don't know if you're going to drop dead. But I know that of, you know, of a, you know, when N is a large number, we know what the percentages are. Now, uh, it's always been done on this pooled risk basis. I think as we have, you know, more, you know, genetic information, then uh, the granularity of that, of that risk can be more easily assessed. Now, at the moment, the insurance industry has got a kind of gentleman's agreement that they're not going to use some of this stuff to sort of say, you're an insurable, you're insurable, you're an insurable, because it, it defeats the idea of pooled risk. And not only that, but, you know, you could find people being, you know, you could argue this on a human rights basis that, you know, people... But as technology improves, not only on the lending side, so I can say, this guy has spent X amount of money in Labrooks in the last yeah. X yep. months. Do I want to lend to him? This person has been Googling liver cancer. Yeah. Do I want to... Uh, can I use that? Maybe I'm privy to... And, and what will happen, I think, is that... Um, like people like Vitality are doing things. If you go to the gym, you get a lower premium. If you show me your genome, yeah. I'll give you, you know, and, and therefore you begin to sort of split apart this idea of pooled yeah. risk. And I think that profound, it creates very, very, you know, important philosophical questions about how we organize our society. Yeah. You know, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, the, the only people who can buy science fiction is, is not yeah. a way. Uh, yeah. The only people who can you buy, buy it are the ones, are who, the ones who don't need it. So I think that that, that that will be something very interesting to watch from a technological point of view. But does that follow through with commoditized banking? So if you were, you know, anybody doing a mortgage today, you've got the change in what's the, the way the risk of a bank is starting to be. Well, I, I mean, yeah. this is, goes back to what I was saying about the other other companies nibbling away at some of the, the sort of more lucrative bits of banking, and what you end up with is a kind of wheezing utility, which is a kind, you know, and the yeah. bank is just a balance sheet, and um, at that point, you know, that is a commodity, and I, you know, if anyone works, and I'm sure some of the, you know, some of the older, you know, the people <laughs> who are not students here have worked in banking a lot, and you'll realize for a company, you go to UBS, you can go to JP Morgan, you can go to whatever. Actually, the service is kind of the same. So it's all about sort of its relationships and all that kind of. But but I think that increasingly it will become about um, convenience, digital experiences, um, and it, and also you know that they're already um, which is like the same going to happen in the energy. You know the ultra commoditization of those services, and I think that's good, that that is probably one of the biggest challenges for mm -hmm. the financial services industry. So does that in a way mean that fintech solves too big to fail or makes it even harder to manage? Uh, good question. I think that, you know, no fintech company wants to get into the, wants the kind of uh, capital charge, the regulatory burden, having to meet with the PRA and all the kind of stuff. They don't want, they don't want to know about that. No, in, and probably neither of the Apples or the Googles of this world. So I think that there will be, um, I mean, if you go to the nth degree, you start ending up almost arguing for the nationalization of some of these institutions because they're not doing anything else yeah. 
other than you know just this these are the deposits and these are the you know these are the loans and these are the credits so so um i think it's going to be tough to distinguish so so howard davis the the chairman of rbs um who you know came in after tom mckillop and what have after the financial crisis put it really well he said basically on the one side you've got the fintech companies they've got all the tech and the great digital experiences and the relationship with the customer and they what they're doing what have you and over here you've got the incumbent banks who've got all the customers and there is a race going on between can these guys the incumbent banks get the tech before these guys who got the tech bring the customers over to them and that is going to be i think that's a very good way of putting it um but you know i think is uh, is a really interesting one in those changes coming but has culture changed uh it's funny isn't it because you know just today we got a, a, a there was a new story about tim throsby from barclays anyone here from barclays hope not okay <laughs> um but they uh so he uh it was it, it was disclosed that he'd taken a loan from jp morgan secured against some of his shares in barclays uh, that's shocking uh, i just well uh, you say that but i mean i haven't w for my time in banking it was very common for people who had a bunch of shares, tens of millions of pounds worth, who needed a bit of liquidity and who didn't want to be seen as big sellers of the shares, to basically say, I'll pledge these shares. A, a very, you know, it, it's not like, you know, I'll give you a million shares, you give me a million pounds. Like, I'll give you four million pounds worth of shares, you give me a million pounds in cash. And it was quite common, and not only that, it was also quite common to do it with a third party because it looks a bit weird if you work for the bank that's actually lending you the money. No, you, well, you're not allowed to. Well, I think, I think the rules are pretty clear. Well, fine. That. Okay. Well, you know, we can go into the Qatar fundraising in a moment. But, but um, that is actually quite uh, common. So I think there is still, um, you know, a culture in banking is that when someone moves who runs a desk, you know, let's say it's fixed income flow desk or whatever, they tend to bring their guys with them, you know, say, so I'll yeah. come, I'll come work for oh. you, but I want to bring my team with me. And within those teams, there is still a kind of quite, you know, uh, lad, not, not that, but kind of, you know, boys club kind of atmosphere within those teams. He's my guy, you know, he's my guy. Now they're learning painfully, you know, um, Jez at Barclays, obviously there was that whistleblowing incident. Yeah. But I think that, you know, if you, on the surface, yes, it's changed. You dig into yeah. that. I think it's. I think there's still, you know, some some old habits die hard there. I think it's it's interesting at what level because I, know I invited six former students to come back and talk about no confidential information, but about what they did during the day, mm. and they all answered in a few days. And when I asked why, they said they had to pacify compliance first. Yeah. And so we've got younger people who are afraid to sort of, can they, can they even come to an event sometimes? Some rules that apply to, you could talk about it as a company as applies to a cashier, probably not, you know, that's, um, but on the other hand, you know, responsible organizations and instincts will kick in that mm. you need to be seen to be um, leading a, a change. So, you know, some, one of the reasons we've seen such incredible sort of um, job creation in the city, despite whatever's around the corner, is that compliance teams, legal, whatever, et cetera, have been beefed up beyond belief. And this is another thing which is affecting the, you know, profitability of the banks. 
I mean, I think we have to get used to the fact that given all of those uh, extra costs and a uh, much tougher capital regime, that banks will never, ever be as profitable as they once yeah. were. And that means that they, you know, and that's a good thing, maybe. It is, but it, I think one of the things that is often overlooked is the fact that banks and others in the, the financial services world have also become tax collectors, the world's policemen for cash flow movements and yeah. all these things. And they're, they're really enforcement vehicles and information collection vehicles for the government that, they, mm. that needs to be supported in some way. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the f se several sort of like, you know, New York State, for example, has got quite used to that revenue line, which is <laughs> bank fines. And, you know, once you start collecting taxes, which is now it looks like this is a pretty regular revenue stream for the last 10 years. Yeah. What are we going to do without it? Because we're talking about hundreds of billions of oh, dollars. Oh, no, no. It's, it's, it, well, New York State the, the what? seems to have changed it on the federal level. They've reduced yeah. it. Yeah. I, I, I remember when I was in regulation when George Osborne changed it. And the fines used to be put towards the operating expenses of the regulator. Mm. And so, in a way, it, it rewarded the good and penalized the bad. The yeah. bad were paying for regulation. Yeah. And then when the chancellor stepped in and said, oh, no, we'll just take all that, mm. I was like, well, that logic made sense to me before. And mm. it doesn't make sense now that it becomes part of the revenue line. Um, it, that's an interesting one. For example, let's say, for example, road tax. Motorists would like their road tax to go to making better roads. Yes. Regulators would like the regulatory fines to creating new little regulators. Ah, fine <laughs> because it's been. I wouldn't. I wouldn't pay um, on all the tickets they handed out. No, right. Uh, that would be well, there are perverse <laughs> incentives, aren't there? In yeah. that. So, and what's interesting about the U.S. is that obviously you've seen the slight rollback of um, Dodd Frank uh, in the U.S. and. I think a lot of people thought that um, the pendulum had swung too far the other way, and it was constraining banks in the U.S. from doing what they did, particularly smaller banks. Yes. You know, come, you know, make sure that the you know globally systemically important ones are doing the right thing, so they can't start another one. But you know, Farmers Bank of Iowa, do we need yeah. to, you know, oh. do we need to be hitting them with the same kind of regulation no. as, as, as 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 you know as Citibank or? No. I think there's a systemic issue for all of them, but there's individually, you know, and we, I think we've dealt well, relatively well with that here. We've, we've progressed quite a bit, but it's, it's interesting. As an academic institution, we're, we could talk about our regulations. That's, yeah. so, so, so some fun stuff, some fun stuff. So, mm. so who, um, what's the most shocking story you ever reported? Uh, what just shocking. shocked you completely? Just uh, that's a tough one. There's been quite a few in terms of. Um, I, I suppose one of the most shocking things that I noticed, if uh, I was there outside on Gresham Street the morning that Lloyd's merged with HBOC, and this came out of the blue, um, and was the product of a conversation between Victor Blank, possibly the chairman of Lloyd's, and Gordon Brown, a cocktail party, and then they thought, you know, gosh, we don't want to have to bail out in an RBS scale. And on that morning, it was clear that the senior management of HBOS and Lloyd's had never met each other. They'd just done a merger, and I saw the chairman of one uh, go up to the chief executive of the other and go, hi, my name's so-and-so. It's like, holy shit. <laughs> You're basically doing a, a multi-billion oh, yeah. pound merger, 
and you guys have clearly never met. For somebody whose share price has just like collapsed, the yeah. rights issue, if I remember, was a complete failure. Yeah. UBS and Morgan Stanley yeah. stuck with four billion of yeah. HBO shares that so were worth about two billion by the time they were. But it was a real money. seat of the pants sort of exercise, <laughs> you know. And, and and the other one was I, um, you know, Bob Diamond. I did an interview with him recently. I think it was the first broadcast interview done since the crisis. And he said, um, I said, well, so what are you doing on the weekend that Lehman Brothers went back? I was trying to buy it. Oh. And, th and then today, is it really rocked people's yeah. faith in financial institutions, no. business in general? And, you know, I think that we've, you know, what we're seeing in the politics of today and what have you, are the ripple effects of that, which is that, you know, it was, you know, inequality on steroids, it was, you know, um, and, uh, and what happened in the aftermath of the, of the crisis is two things happened which were perfectly reasonable to do, which was to loosen monetary policy yeah. and tighten fiscal policy. Now, what that does is it inflates the value of the assets that the haves have, and tightening fiscal policy, you know, reduces the safety net from the, the people at the bottom of the of, of the of the of the totem pole. So actually, it, although you could argue both of them on, a, on an economic basis yeah. are sensible, they have profound uh, societal and political consequences, and I think we're seeing a little bit of that today. Well, wasn't it? But it's a, one of our other questions when you talk about the economy that was raised. So. You know, there were several rounds of QE yeah. and policies, yeah. and it, I guess in my interpretation, it went much too far. It wasn't, it, it had its initial stabilization effect, mm. but I didn't really understand why we continued with it. Will it be reversed? Well, they're trying um, in the architecture, and, you know, what is good for Germany is not good for Greece, what is good for France is not good for uh, you know, Italy. And so when you saw that or fracturing and some of the bond yields going up in some of those countries, Mario Draghi sort of had to step in and say, whatever it takes. And then you had, um, so, you know, it was QE to save the European project in Europe, for example. I think the US, um, you know, you could argue, do you, do you, I think everyone agrees that what you do is you, raise interest rates before you start selling back the bond that's that's yeah. the, that's the yeah. that's the solution most and that's going to be quite an interesting one you know you're, you're, yeah. you're an academic you know this better than me but if you're going to raise interest rates so basically you know you could end up with quite big losses on those bonds that you've yeah. bought what happens to that balance sheet black hole you know i'm, I'm going to well, ask you that question no no it's it's an interesting i mean for the, the bank how it how it man still investing you know the point is is that uh, this is the greatest monetary policy experiment of all time. And um, we don't know how it ends yet, do we? No, no. <laughs> so who, so we, we come back to who, who's, I guess, in interview, somebody who, who most interesting, challenging, somebody that lied to you, I don't know. What, what are a couple of ones? Um, in, in the financial um, area, I would say that... Um, well, Fred never answered any questions, so you've got to talk to people like, uh, you know, he just disappeared off the face of the earth. Um, I mean, I think that uh, what I find interesting is talking to someone like Jez Staley from Barclays, because this guy is an investment banker to his 10 tiny toes, you know, and 
and the, that whole um, morphness you really want to be in. And, but, but so it's watching, I, I guess it's watching old leopards try to change their spots into something different, which is kind of interesting. Jamie Dimon is, uh, he's a very, he's a brilliant interviewee because in a way, because he's, he's, he's got this kind of folksy charm, like a politician. You know, like, what am I going to do? I, I don't know. Because I, I, I remember talking to him at Davos on the morning after David Cameron announced they were going to have a referendum. And actually, when David Cameron, he was on the screen, and there was, there was uh, we're going to have a referendum, there was an audible gasp across the entire audience. <gasps> because they knew, better probably than David Cameron knew, or you know, maybe he was a little bit too confident about what was going to happen, that once you call a referendum, there's a chance you can lose. <laughs> And everyone just took this deep interest. And I happened to be standing next to Jamie Dimon. That's the great thing about Davos. Like, you, know, you know, Dalai Lama's there, Jamie Dimon's <laughs> there, Bob Bill Gates over there. I said, what do you think? He goes, well, you know, I don't, I don't really understand politics. I went, you're, oh, chief yeah. the, you're the chairman <laughs> of the chief executive of J.P. Morgan. If anyone understands <laughs> politics, it's you. The White House has had you on speed dial for the last 20 years. <laughs> of course you understand politics. <laughs> And um, so he's very good because he pretends to not know very much. But what he did tell me about the Brexit stuff, yeah. and this is, uh, please don't tweet this, and this is kind of like, you know, he said, you know, um, because there was this kind of orthodox green legal accounting, so too much. But you can chip bits of the coral reef yeah. off. You can damage yep. it. And what he said, and if I could use a couple of props, he says, you know what we're going to do? You know, okay, we'll put a little glass of water over here in Paris. We'll put one here in Frankfurt. Maybe put one here in Italy. And you know, what we're going to do is we're going to put a little bit of water in this one. And we're going to see how that goes. And a bit of water in this one. And he says, and you know what happens? And he said to me recently, and that was two years ago, and it was using Since we started doing that, you get to know the regulator. You get to know the labor market. The local universities understand that you're hiring and he said, we used to do this. We used to have centers all over Europe. And then obviously, you know, London became the natural place for us to put it all back in under one roof for capital reasons, mm -hmm. for convenience reasons, for expertise reasons. If we have to go back to doing it the old way, we will. And um, so I think that it is, um, we shouldn't be too arrogant about it. It's not gonna, there's not gonna be any moment where people are gonna suddenly pull the plug out, but you know, it's that you'll never know the counterfactual. You'll never know. I mean, New York is already a massive beneficiary of this. Yes, I think that yeah. it was a bit always yeah. going to be the yeah. answer. Yeah. So it kind of leads into in a question um, that's on the board behind it. Uh, so the question has the BBC's reporting on Brexit. Mm. The, the question sort of suggests that um, it's, it's never positive for Brexit, which I. I would say is an expression of an opinion, but okay. Um, is it? You go down our Twitter feed, and fifty percent of it says we are bleeding heart liberal Ramonas, and the other says putting Aaron Banks and Farage all the time. We are in cahoots with the Brexit lobby. So um, it is an impossible. And, and generally, the situation is if you have a mailbag which is as mixed as that, then in the corner offices, we get hammered from every side. And every single thing that, and what, what, what's difficult as a reporter is, 
somebody just told me this. I'm going to report it. And by reporting it, you get attacked for endorsing it. Mm. And there is a massive difference from that. Extent. I just spoke to the chairman or the chief executive of a major financial institution, and this is what they told me. You know, oh, typical BBC, da 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 da, always with the this, that, and the other. And it could be either way. And you basically get um, attacked for having given them a platform. Now, there are two different, you know, a, an interview is not a platform, an interview mm. is an interview. And so just, you know, putting someone and sitting here like I am with you is not giving you a platform or giving yeah. me a platform. It's having an interview. And I think we are, you know, we're in, the, we're in the midst of one of the great problems or, you know, questions of our age at the moment about, you know, um, you can tell someone that black is white and white is black. You know, some people will say, some people say something, I'll say, what's your evidence? I haven't got any, but it's my opinion. Where do you go with that? And um, smarter people than me are, are struggling with these issues in the news right now. I think it's one of the biggest. Now, in a way, I, I think the BBC has got a little bit of an opportunity there. People read something on Twitter. They see it on Facebook. They see it on, I don't know, um, websites or stations which have particular, um, you know. And I think that people, some people still say, I saw this on Twitter. I'm going to turn on the BBC to see if it's true. And I hope, and we take this incredible, I can't tell people in no. this room how incredibly seriously we take this stuff. Um, so we are not in the employ of anyone. There is no puppet master pulling our strings. I've never witnessed anyone um, ever um, with any nefarious side channel, back channel, getting to someone, you know, I've just never, ever seen it. And everyone in that building, I think, to my knowledge, uh, uh, feels the same way. The last one for me before we open up is yeah. combining two things. One is about UK productivity, mm. and the other is the prospect for students at university the next few years. Um, so productivity is a, is a uh, you know, um, I'm not a professional economist. I studied it once upon a time. I think there are lots of things going on with productivity. One is that um, it's cheaper to hire people than it is to invest in stuff. You know, um, labor is cheap. It's flexible, certainly in the UK. And we've got a particular problem here in the UK. Um, so, uh, and there's a lot of people who think there's a trade-off between unemployment and productivity. So you could say, in France, where you have highly regulated, very protected jobs, that it's very hard to fire people, which makes it difficult to hire people. Mm -hmm. So you, you have a, an inflexibility in the workforce, which means that you want to get as much bang for your buck as you can out of the workers you already have. So that would, it, you know, that would be a um, reason that you would invest in you know, better training, better facilities in it's your factory. You, that's the reverse of what I learned in economics. Yeah. Right? In economics, you learn when there's low unemployment, then people invest in because there isn't a labor force. But yeah. when it becomes expensive, yeah. you, you sort of well, pretend that... Well, the idea about productivity is that, and, and, the, and the fact that labor is... One of the things that fueled, I think, the Brexit debate is that, you know, productivity is low because people can just hire whoever they want in lieu because we've got this inexhaustible supply of cheap labor right on our doorstep. Now, I think that most of the studies that have been done, I think Stephen Nickel from the yeah. Bank of England yeah. did one and said that, 
In some areas, there was a 1.8% impact on wages in some, in some areas. Um, do you think that the decline in organized labor unions has a, a, a part to play uh, in that? But there's no doubt that someone's taken a Phillips screwdriver to the Phillips curve. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, you know, you tell me, you're, you're a professional, uh, you know, um, academic. Um, I think, you know, lots of people have, have talked about the productivity um, puzzle. But um, I think that one of the last defenses human beings have against the machines is they're cheap. Yes. <coughs> No, it's, uh, I think the question of whether business invests in productivity is sort of quite, and, and certainly I think the, whichever side of the Brexit argument you're on, the uncertainty it's created hasn't encouraged mm. domestic investment in mm. productivity. I, th I, th I think that possibly the reshoring and the idea that gravity, you know, the, the gravitational uh, view of trade could eventually try and reverse that, but I, you know, Better minds than mine. Paul Krugman will tell you one yeah. thing, and Larry Summers will tell you another. So you know, yeah. read them. So, so students, though, <laughs> students are today not just for a job, but being able to manage a career. Mm. So, um, what I what I hope uh, and what I think is that um, the best part about being a student is being part of a student body, um, and here with those kind of also things that I've noticed over, over many years is that, in a way, artificial intelligence should be able to run a bank or a company better than a person could. And maybe one day they will. But I think a, a lot of investors, Peter Lynch back in his day, you know, the old Fidelity guy, would say, what you do is you buy management. And you buy the management who can create those relationships, create those, um, those soft skills are really, really important. So, um, I think that being part of a social student body and sort of making connections. And one of my greatest regrets, having spent six years on the Today program in the early morning, having every chief executive under the sun walk through, what I should have done was basically make, so before I ask you a single question, I want your mobile phone number. And I didn't do that. And I really, really, really regret it. So. It's an old adage, and, and obviously we can all connect, connect it with LinkedIn and what have you, yeah. but a mobile phone number and a little text saying, listen, do you have two minutes, what have you, that those human connections are still you know, the, the way business is done. You talk to Jeff Staley, he goes, I've got no problem with revenue. I can call up Liam Black at Apollo Management, or I can call up Larry Fink and BlackRock and say we want to do this and we want to do that. You know, th that is, you know, um, robot to robot doesn't work like that. No. Yeah. Um, and, and the only other thing I would say is, uh, get, you know, get the job done, but focus on those. You know, I was going to say, focus on those human relationships. Those would be the things that not only sustain your business or whatever you're in, but actually give you some kind of satisfaction yeah. about the job that you're in. Yeah. Because if if you're just there, you know, you're punching in and punching out. You know, I think Lawrence Stern said, you know, people tire themselves in their quest for rest. Don't try and just get to a number in your bank account and think I can now take it easy. Yeah. Try and enjoy yeah. no, no, the moment that you're in. And if you're not enjoying what you're doing and you're thinking, oh, I've only got another 15 years of this and I can retire, then you're doing the wrong thing. That's all I would say. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. So I'm going to... Um, See, we've got time for a couple of questions, and if I could ask um, everyone across, 
if I, I'm guilty. So. Was my question regarding BBC reporting things about Brexit? Okay. And my observations are that they seem to be reporting things which are damaging or things that are going to go wrong as a result of Brexit. I mean, I don't know whether it's an 11 o'clock watershed when I go to bed and all the good mm. news stories are after 11 o'clock. But I suppose the simplest question to you is, can you remember yourself reporting a good news story about Brexit, how there will be real benefits as a result of Brexit? And this was great news. It's a jolly good decision that we're going to leave. Can you ever remember making that report? Um, I can remember saying that... Um, for example, in the financial services industry, that um, many banking chiefs think that with the US, and we've got obviously some latitude to do that. But I do think that, you know, getting to the heart of your question, I think, um, there was this problem that we had before, during, and after the referendum, which is that, you know, if you talk to economists, you talk to business people, they are overwhelmingly in favor, you know, thought that Brexit was a risk. And we had this idea, we, we grappled this thing of false balance. Now, there are a hundred economists who will tell you that there will be a negative impact of Brexit on the economy, at least in the short term. There are two, Patrick Minford, and I forget the other guy's name, um, who think that there will be a great, or Gerard Lyons maybe, yeah. um, who think that there will be a boost to the UK economy. So when you, you know, and, and that is not our position, I, it would be grotesque for me to say that there is balance amongst economists on saying, on the one hand this, on the other hand that. The, you know, the government's cross-party briefings about this say, you know, it stands to reason that our, if we uh, make trading with our closest and biggest trading partner more expensive and more difficult, then at least in the short term, there will be an economic impact. And to pretend, you know, and, and to sort of say, well, maybe not, is, you know, and, and even Jacob Rees-Mogg says it may be 40 or 50 years before we know whether it's been a good idea to leave the European Union. So I, 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 I stand by the reporting we do because uh, in my particular area, now it may well be that getting back control of our laws, our borders and whatever, is a price worth paying, but there will be an economic price according to most economists, and that's, you know, I'm just reporting a fact there. We do, was there someone? As a confessed Remainer, that's my question at the top, um, should we ask Barnier how much the EU would pay us to stay in? Um, and can we trust the figures, bearing in mind that I believe it's true to say that the European um, accounts have never ever been audited, mm. where do all these figures come from? What trust can we put in them? Uh, Gosh, the, on the EU auditing thing, um, uh, that is true. That um, there's never been a proper kicking of the tires of those. How? Um, I mean, I okay. Uh, what, listen, can I answer that, answer that in a slightly different way? So, so um, I talked to BMW, for example, and you talk to the boss of BMW, who's just been into number ten. You get them on the way out of, bit of number ten and say, "How'd it go?" And they say two things. They say. Um, a, I, you know, what did you say to, to, to the Prime Minister? So actually, we've got a problem. We sell all the cars here. You know, that's, that's, that's for sure. It's one of our biggest markets. Um, and I told the Prime Minister, we've got a real, you know, this is very, very much suboptimal. We don't want this. And Theresa May at that point says, good, go and tell Angela Merkel that. Use some back channel kind of 
leverage to say, you know, BMW don't like this very much, don't like give them a good deal. And what happens then is they dutifully go back to Angela Merkel and say this, and she says two things. One is, A, this is a question for Brussels, not Berlin. And B, um, and this is what I think the UK doesn't quite understand, is that in France and Germany, the European Union is seen as a victory over nothing less than fascism and war. And, this, and Germany is a country that went through reunification, which was a horrible economic process. And uh, ultimately, what Angela Merkel says is, I care more about that than they do about your share price. Go away. So if we expect the Germans to blink, they won't. In, in the face of, are you going to, you know... Now, there will be a fudge. You know, the European Union is a fudge factory. Um, uh, so I, there will be a form of words that comes out. I've got no doubt, 1% doubt, that there will be a deal of some kind and there will be a, you know, an Irish border question which will be like, until such time as there is a blah, 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 and when this deal is in place, then we can get rid of this insurance policy and everyone will sort of get on board um but at some point um but i but i think on on on, the, on that question about you know the we, we they sell a lot of bmws a lot of mercedes a lot of prosecco a lot of french cheese um i wouldn't bank on that that uh that particular um rationale maybe one uh, we've got one over here if i can get you sorry michael is what would the EU and say, you know what, I want to stay. I think if we look at RBS, like we were talking about at the start, their reputational damage, if we go back to the EU and say, you know what, we'll stay, what's the reputational damage going to be like for the UK? Think about that. Um, in whose eyes? Theirs? In the EU, just what will, be, what, will we, what, will be, what will we be seen like from the EU's perspective? Um, I think it's quite a good question. I, you know, um, point is that, uh, so, so I think the implication of the question is that if we go back, so sort of saying, oh, we're terribly sorry, it was all a terrible mistake, sorry, 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 having back like some kind of, you know, jilted girlfriend or boyfriend, um, it will look pathetic. Um, you know, I think we'll feel pathetic. I think that actually, you know, you know, there are rules and regulations of the EU which mean that, you know, how we are treated in a legal way can't change because they are laws so can't suddenly redraft the laws to say these are the people who tried to to leave and then came back n note them down two house points and treat them like shit from now on <laughs> I, don't, I don't see legally how that could work <laughs> that's, that's a, okay so just just a, a last one um since we're China, the U.S., I read today, you know, China's still booming. The U.S. is actually increasing what it's taking in, even though tariffs are mm. full steam. Is this going to uh, really have a long-term effect, or is it, do we just learn to live with? I think it's sort of the new noise, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you know, you had Robert Azevedo from the WTO the other day at the Mansion House said it could knock 1.9% off global GDP if it got nasty. I don't think that's in anyone's interest. Yeah. I mean, the Chinese in particular are incredibly pragmatic about these sort of things. Um, and you, and it, you, know, you noticed also with the um, 
trumped Iran sanctions when they sort of really got tough, but let eight countries off who are their allies yeah. just to make it, you know, that there's a pragmatism in, 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 in that. I, I do think that it won't be um, tit for tat. I think, that I think my view is that the, the, the end to the trade war, the amelioration of the trade war will actually be corporate America who are already now the most, uh, a very reluctant consumer of the most expensive. Well, it's, it's, it's we're, um, What do you think? Well, yeah, you know. I think with a demo the Democratic Council of Representatives, mm. who traditionally have been the most anti-trade, mm. are they going to change the stripes? No. So you know, business doesn't necessarily have a friend. It, it looks equivalent. Yeah. You've got the the urban sort of service industry, whatever you want to call it, versus. Mm the manufacturing industry or whatever it is, and, mm. and the rural side. Mm. And um, his constituency, you know, is he going to gain any more votes? No, they, I mean, the Harley-Davidson guys uh, who were clearly losing jobs and, you know, mm. losing sales and moving, they, they said, we're still for, we're still for Donald. I mean, uh, the, the, I think you all know better than me, but the, you know, and the economists in the room will know better than me that you know, focusing on the trade deficit is economically illiterate. Yeah, oh, of course. Um, so um, the idea that that it that doesn't make any sense at all. No. You know, if you can get people to give you s stuff cheaper than you yeah. can make it yourself, yeah. then you can use your resources to do things like design iPhones, for example, yeah. uh, oh. rather than uh, make steel. Well, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, and the um, what was the other thing you were saying? Country, he's got he's got a labor shortage. Yeah. You know, and doesn't want immigration. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. I, you know, I think we're all a bit baffled by what's going on at the moment. But um, does it does it matter? You know, that's the. Is I'm on the uh, an asset allocation <laughs> committee for an investment fund, and I sit there and say, does you know, I'm trying to figure out if politics is going to be the catalyst to blow something up, or does politics not matter because mm. the economics rule the world and. I, th I think I think politics matters less than economics. Yeah. Generally speaking, that's a rule of thumb, um, and I think we'll figure a way out. You know, if we have chaos at the borders, whatever, we'll figure a way out to do it. Then no one's going to, you know, EU and the UK are not going to sit by and let the UK starve to death. You know, just because you know food can't go there, that's not going to happen. And you know, that is alarmist. I think one thing that I really would point out is that the US's Trump card. I'm not allowed to say that anymore. <laughs> are you? The US's the US's ace in the pack is that um, they've got this incredible overweening, overreaching influence through the dollar-based banking system. Yep. And the idea that you can basically say to a company, say, uh, you know, you can't do business with Iran, and you can't do business with anyone who does business with Iran, or anyone who's your friends, your friends, and your friends, and we'll buy the currency, you know, it's too often and too, with a, you know... Uh, the, the Chinese mm. wanted a more tradable currency and they sort of I'm not so sure they they're really convinced and no, um, may end up with you know how they in in their bad debt regime how that gets does it get mm. national do, do they socialize more of that private debt as it goes bad and how things evolve but there isn't a real I mean the EU probably still has a trade deficit but mm. uh, excuse me trade surplus yeah yeah right? mm. so the euros aren't going to be there right mm. sterling is not going to we're too small, and mm. the Japanese. Is a, so what? What is you know special drawing rights? Yeah. Cryptocurrencies, maybe. <laughs> well, okay, you know, um, Bitcoin. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, gold, maybe. I know. Um, I've never understood gold. If anyone can explain to me what what the appeal of gold is, I'm here. You know, it's non-perishable. You can't eat it. 
not. <laughs> well, <laughs> cryptocurrency, you can't even see it. Yeah. <laughs> At least you can see it. But I guess the, the one thing I would sort of, uh, as a final thought, is that one thing that every bo banking boss tells me is that every, and it's not just banking, it's insurance, it's even, you know, manufacturing. Every business is a technology business now. Yes. And so, um, you know, you can, uh, so I'd say to the students here that, you know, um, keeping up with that stuff um, is not just a kind of extra module. It's pretty central. Yeah. No, I, th I think you're, but I, I'm about, you know, we, we uh, it's our 140th anniversary in a few months. Mm. And I wanted to try and think about writing something. And <laughs> the light bulb, the electric light bulb and the typewriter were patented in 1878. Mm. Imagine banking when you didn't have the electric light or you couldn't type. You know? So you know, if you think about, it's always been in, you know, an industry that uses technology. Mm. And it's just, uh, but it's, I hope, in understanding the technology, one thing I'm always worried about is bankers don't forget that they're, they're not, I don't think, they're in a technology business. They're in a business that uses technology. Yeah. And that, that's the challenge, I think, for most businesses. They have to figure out how to use it. But mm. if they forget, that, that's sort of, I've, I've Anyway, but I, um, I appreciate your comments. Thank you so much My for pleasure. coming. Can I ask everyone to please have... Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find out more information about our talks and events at www.libf.ac.uk forward slash events. Want to get involved? Contact us at podcast at libf.ac.uk.